For what do I have If I don't have you, Jesus What in this life Could mean anymore You are my rock You are my glory You are the lifter of my head All right, everybody, let's go ahead and get started with the Bible study this morning. I want to welcome you back to your seats. I give you a little extra time, but now your time is spent. So it's my time to talk, all right? So pay your attention up here, all right? Uh, I'm going to try to let the Lord do most of the speaking if we can manage that. So uh, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. That's where we'll be headed this morning for our message to consider the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. As you're turning there, I want to say that it's always an honor to be able to share uh, with you guys. I love this church. I got saved in this church when there was like 20 people back in Sebastopol. The church was planted in 2003. I came in 2005, had no idea which way was up or down, left or right. 23 years old, living a life of darkness and depression and uh, no hope. And uh, I was invited to go to church and the people there just loved on me. I didn't understand it. I didn't, they didn't know me. They didn't know all the, where I'd come from, all the things I had done, but yet they still loved me with this sincere and warm love that I couldn't understand. It kept bringing me back, and eventually I realized this love comes from God, and that love is what transformed my heart. And so I love this church, my church home. I was born again in this church, and I uh, just got, I had the privilege of being able to watch God grow and multiply the fruit that uh, has come from this ministry and from Pastor Ross and Barb, their faithful um, uh, discipleship and ministry to uh, countless people as the Lord has just blessed the work here. So I love being on staff. It's such a privilege. God has blessed me to be on staff here at this awesome, awesome church. You know, everywhere I go, if somebody knows about The Rock, uh, they just say, wow, that church is amazing. Even Pastor Miles de Benedictus last week, right? He was our guest speaker and he teaches down at the Bible College and we've sent probably about 36, 35, 36 students down there uh, over the years to attend. I attended there myself. And um, we just love getting people down there because we know that they're gonna teach them the word. And every person that goes from the rock down there has a reputation. And now the rock has a reputation because they find out the rock, the rock, wow, this is amazing. So I'm just so blessed to be a part of the ministry here. So blessed to be able to be uh, serving alongside an incredible staff uh, who really loves the word of God and loves to reach the lost. And I'm so blessed uh, to be able to uh, sit under the teaching, the faithful teaching of Pastor Ross as he um, exposits to us the word of God that the Lord has handed down to us over the ages. Well, the longer I observe this world, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how desperately, how desperately we are in need of his love and his grace, that we have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that we're gonna be showing the movie, The American Gospel. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've only seen the first, the first half. Uh, but I'm so glad we're gonna be able to be showing that because there's a lot of ideas out there in this world. There always has been, but uh, if you pay attention, your knowledge of uh, these ideas will grow more and more. There's so many ideas about what this world needs. There's so many ideas about what this world needs, but there's only one true thing that this world can stand upon as far as hope and as far as life, as far as transformation, as far as salvation goes. 
and that is the cross of Jesus. We're gonna take a look at that this morning. There's only one thing that can, there's only one thing that can penetrate our hearts and cause us to embrace a hope that transcends all of the evil, all of the wickedness, not just that we observe and see, but that starts in our very heart. There's only one thing, and that is Calvary, the cross, Jesus Christ going to the cross for us. So we're gonna talk about that this morning. First, I have a funny story to kind of illustrate this point that the world is broken and it starts in our hearts and even over the smallest things, we can let that brokenness seep out, right? So I was taking my son, Dutro, he's five years old. Uh, a few weeks ago, we went and uh, we went to a recycling center. I wanna teach him how to recycle, right? He's gotta earn his keep. This is gonna be his job. He doesn't get an allowance. He's gotta work for his pay, right? Even though I do most of the work, but you know, he'll learn and he'll grow. So we've been gathering cans and bottles and we finally are ready to take them to the recycling center, one of those little containers in the backside of a Safeway, right? You've seen them there before. And uh, so we get everything ready, we go there. There's nobody there, there's like one other person there. And so it's like, great, this is gonna be pretty easy. We're gonna get through this. And so we start sorting our recycling. And as we're getting ready to get in line, all of a sudden, all these people start showing up. It was like, you know, happy hour for recycling, it seemed like. <laughs> And so uh, we get in line, we're like two or three in line and we're just kind of getting our stuff in position and people just started pouring in. And uh, there's a, apparently there's a place that they're supposed to park. It's just in a big, there's no parking like stalls in this area, it's just a big open lot. And the person who works there is really adamant about where people are supposed to park. So while we're getting ready, this car pulls up and it pulls up right to the end of the line, just out in the open parking lot, right? And this guy who's helping customers and all these guys are flooding in is trying to yell to them, you can't park there, you have to park on the other side. And, and then two more cars pull in right next to him and they start getting out and getting their recycling stuff. So I'm standing there with my son Dutro, we're in line waiting to do our recycling. I can tell that the attendant is getting like panicked. He's getting anxious over this, right? He's really particular about where these people park. So I'm like, this is gonna hold things up. So I'm standing there with my son. We got our containers that you have to put the recycling into there. I've got my gloves on, you know, to handle the mess or whatever. I said, I got you, bro. And I walk over to where they are, right? And they're getting out of their car. I'm like, hey, just, just so you know, he's asking that everybody parks on the other side. And so they look at me like, oh, great, bearer of bad news. I just got all my recycling out. But I said it very nicely. And so, you know, they felt, you know, like they needed to do what was being asked. So they drove around. I go back and I get in line. Everybody else is getting in line. They kind of hold their spot. They bring, you know, they got several bags. So they bring a bag, they mark their spot. And, you know, the line is filling up. It's like crazy. And so there's this one guy, he, he leaves and he comes back and he gets to his barrels and he's standing there and he's looking around and he says, where did my other barrel go? And everybody else is like, I don't know, like, I don't know where your barrel is. Am I your brother's keeper? And he keeps saying, where is my other barrel? Where is my other barrel? And this other guy comes walking from, he had uh, prepared his place as well with his recycling. He comes walking over from his car with his other bag and this guy's standing there and he turns and he looks at him and he says, where is my other barrel? Like he just keeps asking this question. And this other guy who's an older gentleman, he was like dressed nice, had a nice car. I'm wondering, why is he even recycling? What's the point of him being here, right? <laughs> but obviously he had something to prove because he's walking over. He's like, I don't know. Why are you looking at me? Why are you accusing me? The guy's like, man, I'm not accusing you. I'm just asking where my barrel is. Well, it looks like you're accusing me. Well, I'm not. My barrel was here a moment ago and now it's missing. He's like, well, I didn't take it, so don't blame me. And all of a sudden, this, this altercation is breaking out, right? And so Dutro's staring like this. My son Dutro, he's staring like this. And he's like, 
oh no, daddy, why are these adults arguing? And he starts, he starts to give this verbal commentary on what's going on in the situation. So, so the, the first guy goes to this guy who's coming, the older guy, he goes to his barrel and he's looking, it's filled with two liter bottles on the top, right? And he kind of like sticks his hand in there and he's all, I think this is my barrel because there's like other things underneath. And the other guy's all, hey, don't touch my stuff, you know? And they start fighting. He's all, he's all I, de- I demand that this establishment do something about this. And he walks over to me because, because I, was, I was the one who told him that he had to park on the other side. And so he thinks that I worked there. So he's getting in my face and he's like, he's like, he's like if this establishment doesn't, if you don't do something about this right now, I'm gonna call the cops. I'm like, dude, I don't work here. I'm just here trying to teach my five-year-old son how to recycle. The joys of recycling how to be a good steward of this earth, how to earn his keep and be a good citizen and get along with people. That's what I'm trying to teach him, right? So everybody else in line, all of a sudden, like we're their favorites, right? Because they see that we're getting, like I say, I'm just trying to teach my son how to recycle. And they're like, yeah, leave him alone, you know? (laughs) He's in my face right here. The craziest thing is there's a guy standing next to me, the guy that works there. He's got an orange vest on with all kinds of reflectors. He's got gloves on and he's got recycling mess all over him. And so this guy says, well, who works here? And the guy's like, I'm, I'm in charge here, you know? And so anyways, he's all, I demand that something be done. And he walks back and he starts arguing with the other guy because this guy's like, oh, I don't know what to do, you know? And so they, they're still arguing and the guy starts taking stuff out of his barrel and it gets really heated. And at this point, I'm like, this is serious. Like they, and so Dutro, he's still giving his verbal commentary. He's like, he's like, oh no, dada, they're fighting, they're arguing. So I'm like, okay, I gotta take care of this. Like I can't break this up. So I squat down like a coach. I'm like, Dutro, sometimes when, when adults, uh, sometimes adults, especially if they don't know Jesus, they, you know, they, they fight with each other because they have broken hearts. And he's all, dada, somebody should tell them about Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, somebody should. And he's like, dada, Dada, you should tell them about Jesus right now. I'm like, well, Dutro, I, I don't think they're gonna listen to me right now, but maybe after they calm down, I can tell them about Jesus. And then this guy, this guy over here is all, that's it, I'm calling the cops. And Dutro's like, oh no, he's calling the cops. He's like, you're gonna get arrested. And Dutro's like, he's gonna get arrested. And so finally, the security guard that had apparently been walking around the building comes over, right? And Dutro's like, no, the cops are here. They're gonna arrest him. He's got a badge and I squatted down. I said, no, Dutro, he's here. He's gonna fix the problem. He's gonna help them figure it out. He's gonna calm it down and he's gonna help them fix the problem. He was just like on red alert, you know, and everybody there just feels bad for him. And the guy that's in front of us, he's like this big biker guy with a beard and like cut off sleeves and tattoos. He's like, he's like, it's okay, son. It's gonna be all right. You know, why don't you go first? I'm like, thanks. That was very nice of you. You wanna go first? So for the next half hour after we recycled, you know, I was, Dutra was asking questions and we were talking about it really, like it was really intense. I want, you know, I was wondering even halfway through, like, should we just, should we leave? Because he's getting pretty scared, he's pretty concerned. But I thought, you know what, this is gonna be a good teaching opportunity to talk about how broken our world is. I thought about at one point while they're arguing, just saying, guys, I will give you each $5, which is worth way more than whatever's in that barrel. Like I came here and I'm gonna get $9.55 from six, six months worth, worth of saving recycling. Like this is not that important. And it's kind of a funny story, but the sad thing is, is that 
it just demonstrates, I mean, as silly as it is, the brokenness in our hearts that we would war against one another because we are warring within ourselves. And there is no hope, there is no salvation, there is nothing that can change that or transform that except for Jesus Christ. And as I read the scripture, I think about uh, the ways, the many times, obviously, that this is taught to us throughout the word of God, that Jesus is our only hope. But there's one place, I think, that illustrates it the best, that shows that there is no other way that our hearts can be transformed, that our hearts can be reconciled to truth, to love, and ultimately to God. There's no, uh, there's no other way, and I don't think there's any better demonstration of this than the Garden of Gethsemane. The, at the Garden of Gethsemane, we find the reality that if there, could ever, if there could ever be any other way for us to stand on anything else, to put our hope in anything else, for us to be redeemed or transformed, uh, it could have happened there, but it did not. And we're gonna look at that today in Luke chapter 22. Now I realize that the Garden of Gethsemane, is kind of out of order here because this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And the Garden of Gethsemane happens during Passion Week. Um, but usually Passion Week, we don't really talk about the garden that often because you talk about Palm Sunday on Sunday, you talk about Calvary on Friday, and you talk about the empty tomb on Sunday, right? So we're gonna talk about the Garden of Gethsemane today and prime the pump so to speak, for Passion Week that's coming up. So we're gonna look at Luke 22. Just a little bit of context. Jesus had just spent time with his disciples in a place called the Upper Room there in Jerusalem. They celebrated the Passover together. And Jesus shared with them, which was really what we consider today communion, the very first communion where he took the Passover elements and he implemented this idea that now Passover was really about him. And any time that we remember what God did back, uh, back in Egypt to free the Israelites from bondage. Uh, he's doing for us in a spiritual sense to free us from the bondage of sin and guilt and death. So that's what's going on here uh, right before the Garden of Gethsemane. They spend time there. Jesus gives them some, some very important instructions. Of course, uh, it says uh, during the, the Passover that uh, Judas... Uh, went out from that place to go and accomplish um, the betrayal that, uh, that he was going to uh, bring to Jesus. And so Jesus and the remaining disciples, uh, as Jesus is teaching them, they leave that place and they go to a place called the Mount of Olives. And that's what we're gonna pick up right now in verse 39. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, God, we just pray that it wouldn't just be us reading it, Lord, but as you do that work of reading us, reading our hearts and revealing to us, God, what it is that you want to speak to us this morning. God, we pray that you would just open our hearts and let your word flow through May we be washed in the water of your word. 
cleansed, Lord, for this day through what we read and uh, to put into practice that which uh, you speak to us, Lord, that we may be blessed as a result. So God, we give you this time and we ask you, Lord, to teach us things that only you can teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it says that they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives is uh, located just to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. I have a picture here. Um, and I'm going to go back one there. And uh, those of you who have been able to go to Israel, maybe on one of our trips, this is, this, these pictures are actually from the last trip that was in 20, that was last year. And uh, I got to go in 2013. It was an awesome trip. We have another trip coming up. Uh, next year, uh, and uh, you'll be hearing more about that soon. But basically, one of the places you get to visit is the Mount of Olives. And so from the top of the Mount, Mount of Olives, when you walk down to what we're gonna be looking at today, the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the east side of the old city. And that actually right here, this wall right here is the Temple Mount uh, that the temple used to stand upon before it was destroyed. Now it's been replaced by the Dome of the Rock Shrine. And uh, from the top of the Mount of Olives, you look across the Kidron Brook, the Kidron Valley that runs along here, and you look across to the east gate uh, of the temple right there that's been sealed up and has a very important part within uh, end times prophecy. Um, so at the top of the Mount of Olives, you walk down the, the west side of the Mount of Olives, and down in that area is a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can actually visit it today and so this is uh, some people from our trip. There's the disciples before they fell asleep. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can go there and you can reminisce on this event that we're talking about today, the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, some of the trees, uh, uh, I have other pictures of, of even older trees than these. Some, some of the trees date back to almost the time of Christ. And so you can walk around in these gardens, these olive gardens, and uh, you can just get a sense of what it might have been like during that night. Gethsemane uh, means, literally means, olive press. It was a place that they would take the olives that had been harvested from the trees, they'd put them in a press, and they would apply pressure to them, obviously, to be able to get olive oil, which was used for all kinds of things, including anointing those who would be prepared for ministry. And so here we find Jesus and his, his disciples going to this place that they commonly went to, to pray together, to spend time together, a little retreat, if you will, from out of the city, and his disciples followed him out to that place. Uh, it's a fitting place to prepare for the cross, the olive press, where Jesus would be fit in the press, prepared uh, for the cross. So his disciples were with him. Let's try to imagine the scene a little bit. Of course, it was nighttime, so I don't have a picture of, of the place at night, but I'll leave this picture up for a little bit. It was nighttime, and... Uh, the, the pressure that Jesus felt to go to the cross and bear the sins of the world uh, must have been intense, and it was going to happen this night. He spent his last time with his disciples. He brought them out to the Mount of Olives uh, with himself, and uh, we read a little bit more commentary in the Gospel of Matthew. It says that Jesus... I'm uh, oh, sorry, I went too back there. Sorry, Spencer, can you put up... Uh, Matthew 26, 37, there we go. It says, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
So Jesus wanted them to do two things, really, to keep him company during his, his hour of trial and preparation for the cross. And also because Jesus wasn't selfish or concerned about himself, but always concerned about others, he wanted them to watch and pray so they wouldn't be tempted because there was a great trial coming that Jesus knew was a great trial. The disciples, I guess they didn't know as well, or even if they did know, they weren't able to fulfill that desire that Jesus had. They failed him. But today we're not gonna talk about the failure of the disciples because I wanna focus on the success of our Lord. So that's for another message. But the disciples were there with him. He asked them to watch and pray. He sought the company of friends as he went through his trial. And he continued on from them to pray on his own. He continued on about as far as you can throw a stone, the gospel says. And there, the rock of ages fell to the earth and uttered the most desperate SOS message ever to be transmitted for all eternity. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There's a lot going on in this little prayer. Jesus, who had had perfect communion with the Father now, in a time of testing, he had done everything the Father required of him, everything the Father asked. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. He had perfect relationship, perfect fellowship, perfect communion with the Father. And now he lays one more request before the Father, asking if there's any way, if there's any other way that the work that you desire to do can be accomplished. Please, let that happen and let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is the cup? Let's talk about the cup for a moment. I think there's three realities in what Jesus is thinking about as he's preparing himself uh, for what he, what's about to take place. The cup, three realities. First, there's the cross, the physical cross, right? This Roman execution device that was used to perfectly and utterly torture somebody until they died, slowly torturing them until they had no more strength, no more blood, no more life, and then they would pass away. This cross, this wooden cross that Jesus himself created the wood, Jesus himself who created all things, the Bible tells us, fashioned the wood that would be used to make this cross that he was about to be on, to suffer physical pain and physical agony. The thing about the cross is Jesus isn't the only one who was ever crucified. There were plenty of other people that were crucified. There were plenty of other people who endured the cross. This was a reality for Jesus as he was about to go to the cross, but I don't think this is what Jesus is asking about when he says if there is any other way. In fact, he had resolved himself and he had foretold several times. He had predicted his death over and over again. He knew he was gonna suffer and die. He told the disciples that. They didn't know what he was talking about, but over and over again, he told them what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen. And so I don't think it's the cross that he considers as uh, the cup. There's something else. There's a couple other things, and these are what I think uh, was the weight that was bearing on Jesus' mind and shoulders are the sins of the world. See, at the cross, he died physically on the cross for us, but at the cross, he didn't just die physically like other people had experienced on the cross. In his soul, he experienced the pouring out 
of every sin that had ever and will ever be committed since the Garden of Eden. Every single sin, every single wrongdoing, he himself was about to take it upon himself there in his soul, and his soul was in anguish because of this reality. He was going to absorb the wrath of God like a sponge, the wrath that you and I deserved because of our sin. Every little lie, every little act of selfishness, every thought that we embraced that was contrary to the nature of God, everything he was gonna bear upon himself in his soul. The sins of the world poured out upon him. That's the second thing. The third thing, the third reality that was about to take place, that was taking place as he prepared for the cross was something that had never happened ever, ever, not just in our timeline, but in all eternity, eternity past. It had never happened that fellowship between the Father and the Son would be broken. He would be forsaken by the Father for the first time ever. Perfect harmony, perfect relationship, perfect fellowship and communion, severed because the Father could not bear to look upon the sin that was about to be poured out on him. We read Isaiah 53 for this morning's call to worship and it says that it pleased God to crush him for our iniquity. Now, somebody who doesn't understand would hear that and, hear that and say, that sounds weird. Why, why would God be pleased to crush somebody? That sounds, <laughs> that sounds dark. Well, it was dark. It was dark for Jesus, but it was also dark for the Father. Why did it please God to crush Jesus? Why did it please God to turn his face away from the beloved, his one and only beloved son? Because he knew it was the only way that he could turn his face towards us and that we could have life in his name. I think of my, my children, you know, I, I mentioned Dutro earlier and I have another son, he's three years old, his name's Ames. And I, <laughs> those little guys, <laughs> sometimes they're hard to love, but I love them. <laughs> I love them so much, tremendously. And I can never, I, can, I can't imagine I can't imagine, even in that situation at the recycling center when, when, when Ducho was you know, getting anxious and getting nervous, my heart went out to him and I was wondering, what, can I, what should I do? Should I rescue him from this situation? Should I explain? What, what should I do? You know, Even in that kind of silly situation, I couldn't bear to think that my son would be affected negatively, would, would be brought to some kind of harm emotionally or maybe even physically if something erupted. I couldn't bear that thought. Yet the Father, in his great love for us, and in his knowledge that it was the only way that we could be brought into relationship with Jesus, was willing to crush his son and turn his face from him. Those are the three things, at least, that were going on in Jesus' mind. The cup. Please let this cup pass from me. You can do anything, another uh, gospel writer records. You can do anything. Everything is possible for you. If you would, please let this cup pass from me. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the cup is a symbol for God's wrath. And I think that's the best way to look at it in this context as well. The wrath of God. The wrath of God that was gonna be poured out on the, on the nations uh, during uh, you know, Israel's rebellion against God and all the nations rebelling against God and warring with, with one another. Uh, many times, God forewarned, hey, the, the, the cup of my wrath is going to be poured out, or in another, or in other times it would say it would be it would the the nations would drink the cup of his wrath to the dregs. In other words, he was going to annihilate them. 
He was going to make it so they couldn't do the things that they were doing in rebellion to God anymore. This is the wrath represented by this cup. I find it interesting, you know, God has created us body, soul, and spirit. And as I was thinking through this passage, I was thinking, wow, God, God in order to redeem us, Jesus has to redeem all of us, the whole us, body, soul, and spirit. And in order to do that, he has to suffer in his body, soul, and spirit. And these three things that I was thinking of as he's preparing to go to the cross are all in play right there. He's gonna suffer in his body on the cross. That's obvious. That's the thing that we can see. That's the thing that we can imagine. The thing we can imagine is the suffering of his soul, death to his soul, because all of the sins being poured out upon him. What's interesting, though, is that the Bible doesn't just say that Jesus died for our sins. Of course, that's true, and we know that, but it says that he became our sin. He became our sin. Whatever our sin was, and however that's possible, he became it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to think about the most evil, repulsive thing that you can think of, the thing that bothers you the most about this evil world. Maybe it's the evil you see inside yourself. Maybe it's the evil you see inside others. But just think about just one thing. There's many things you can think about. Just think about one thing. The thing that, the thing is that, that is the most evil to you Now imagine yourself becoming that thing. That's what Jesus did for us. But not just for one thing. He did it for everything. Every sin, every evil. He became that. And suffered in his soul, died in his soul as a result of that. How about his spirit? When Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were created perfect. Body, soul, and spirit, perfectly created in the image of God. God gave them, he gave them a warning. He gave them a law for them to be able to exercise the free will of their love towards him through choice, choosing what he had permitted for them and not choosing what he had restricted, prohibited from them. And they chose the thing that was prohibited. And he forewarned them. He said, in the day that you choose to eat from that tree, which I have forbidden you to eat from, you will die. And dying, you will die. This is how the language is. Dying, you will die. You will die and you will keep dying. Of course, when they ate from it, they didn't die physically. And their soul, which is kind of, it's a, it's a mystery, but it's, it's the part of us that's immaterial. It's our mind, it's our makeup, it's our personality. It's the thing kind of in between our body and God where the spirit dwells. Their soul was alive, their body was alive, but their spirit died. And every person that's been born since them is born spiritually dead. Body, soul, and spirit. We're born, our body may be alive, our soul is alive, but our spirit is dead. And we must be born again. That's where Jesus talks about being born again. You must be born again or born from above or born of the Spirit in order to have life. What is that? It's reconciliation with God through the gift that he's provided through Jesus Christ. Trusting in that and receiving it and becoming once again a child of God. That's what being born again means. A lot of people don't understand. What, you know, it's like Nicodemus. Well, I was already born once. How can I be born a second time? 
And Jesus said, you need to understand the spiritual truth. Unless you are born again, you will not see heaven. We are born the first time, body, soul, and spirit, but our spirit is dead. It needs to be regenerated. And only trusting Jesus can do that. What does it mean to be dead in our spirit? It means that we are separated from God. We are separated from God. We're severed from the author of life. Outside of him, there is no life. Life is only found in him. And so when we are born, we are born, we start off severed from him because we've inherited this sin nature and our spirit needs to be born again. And so Jesus there, when he died on the cross and he was looking at the cup of God's wrath, knew that he would pay the price, body, soul, and spirit, separated from God for the first time ever. And this is the thing that brought him to his knees in desperation before the Father, the wrath of God that we deserved and he did not deserve. He was about to face it head on. We shouldn't think though that he was shrinking away from the task of the work that he was about to do. That's not what he was doing. He wasn't shrinking back. He wasn't afraid of death. He knew what he was going to be doing the whole time. He, like I said, he predicted, he foretold his death. He knew that he was gonna go to the cross. He was prepared to face that. But in his human nature, Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God, in his human nature, he had never used his godness to accomplish anything on this earth except for the miracles when the father would tell him to do that. He obviously demonstrated that he was God through his miracles. But he had never used his deity to rescue himself from suffering because that wasn't the father's will. He had to taste fully what it was like to be a man so that he could drink up fully the wrath of God that man deserved. This was the reality. So it wasn't that he was shrinking back from the task. He knew that, that this was happening. But so, so why then is he praying this prayer? Why is he coming to the Father and saying, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think there was two things that were going on here. I think he was confirming two things. God wants us to know at least two things about why Jesus came to the Father in prayer with this request. The first thing is this. The absolute revulsion and repugnance of our sin. Can you imagine the Lord of glory, God himself, looking ahead to the reality of him becoming the most evil, despicable, disgusting thing that you or I could think of. He was reviled by our sin. It repulsed him. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse two, there's this little phrase that said, he scorned the shame. He scorned the shame. It was not fun for him. It was not pleasing to him to face that head on and have to walk through that. So he was confirming the absolute revulsion and repugnance of our sin. The second thing he was confirming was the absolute necessity of his becoming it. He was repulsed by our sin, but he knew he had to become it in order to deal with it. 
He was confirming the very thing that we're talking about today. There is no other way. Asking the Father if there was, and the Father remained silent. Reviled, revolted, disgusted by our sin. Just think about your life. Just think about the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things that you've embraced in your thoughts. Think about them. Sometimes we do it without even thinking about it. As for me, my heart was filled, filled with sin, covetousness, lies, thievery, lust, murder, hatred, bitterness, disrespect, dishonor, blasphemy, idolatry, hatred towards God. Maybe not a conscious, I hate you, God, but the way that I lived showed that I hated God. Everything in me wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, as evil as it was, that's what I wanted to do, and I, by the testimony of my life, hated the Lord of glory, my creator, my maker, in whose image I was made and in and, and whose image I had tainted through my embracing of sin. I had an utter and absolute contempt for God in my life. And so did you. So did we. Even if you're not aware of it, even if you don't think that you were, all you have to do is look at the cross. There's no, turn, there's no turning away from the reality of who we are apart from God when the cross is standing right in front of you. No wonder Jesus wasn't looking forward to it, to experience that reality of our sin. As we look at the other gospels, we learn that he prayed this prayer three times. Three times, just to confirm. As if the father wasn't listening the first time or the second time. He prayed three times. And three times there was silence. And this is the point. If anyone at any time ever could have proposed another way for us to be forgiven, for us to receive salvation, if anyone could have pr proposed another way at any time ever, it would have been the eternal God of glory, of the universe, of all creation, right here, right now, in the garden. But there was silence. One commentator said, we understand this prayer to mean if there is any other way by which sinners can be saved than by my going to the cross, reveal that way now. The heavens were silent because there was no other way. There was no other way. There is no other way. It couldn't happen without a willing savior our salvation. We needed a savior. John chapter 14 and verse six says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. 
Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It couldn't happen without a willing savior. It couldn't happen without a God-man who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might make atonement, reconciliation for the sins of the people. It couldn't happen without a God-man. It couldn't happen without a ransom payment. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sin. It couldn't happen without a ransom payment. It couldn't happen without a blood sacrifice. For the life of all living things is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus suffered to make people holy through his own blood. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. If you were offended by the blood of Jesus this morning, I get it. It seems like a weird thing to think about, you know, to, to honor and to, to glory in the blood of Jesus. But if you're offended by the blood of Jesus, it reveals two things about you. One, you do not understand the depravity of your sin. And two, you do not understand the holiness of God. Those of us who think that we haven't sinned or if we have sinned, it's not that bad. It doesn't really deserve judgment. It doesn't really deserve condemnation or the wrath of God. We underestimate two things. We underestimate the depravity of our sinful nature and we underestimate the holiness of God's nature. It's a gap that no one could span except for Jesus. That's why the answer was no. There was no answer. There was no answer in the affirmative. There was no, there is another way. There was just silence. Because the answer was no. God himself confirming there is no other way. Jesus confirming through his prayer and God confirming through his answer of silence. This brings us to the second thought, the passion of Jesus. We looked at the Father's reply. Now let's finish up quickly with the, the resolve of Jesus, Jesus' resolve. Our text says that an angel from heaven came and strengthened him. This wasn't just a physical battle. This was a spiritual battle. We did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this age. There is a spiritual battle over our souls, and you better believe there was a spiritual battle, obviously, going on in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prepared for the cross. 
He was tempted in the desert in the beginning of his ministry, and now here he is tempted in the garden at the end. And so the Lord seeks to even things out by sending him an angel to strengthen him. Angels attended him before his ministry began, and now angels attend him again before Calvary. The angel wasn't there to comfort him or to coddle him or to give him an answer of there being another way. The, answer, the angel was there to strengthen him. One commentator said, every life has its Gethsemane and every Gethsemane has its angel. And I can appreciate that. I can appreciate what he's saying, but the exception is that in our Gethsemanes, it's Jesus himself who comes to our aid. An angel came to strengthen Jesus, but in, in our experiences, in our trials, in our suffering, it's Jesus himself who comes to our aid. Hebrews 2.18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows more than anyone the trials that we face because he faced them all and more here in the garden. Every sin, every shattered life, perversion and atrocity that had ever taken place since the Garden of Eden was about to be poured out on him as he resolved himself to submission here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The victory of Calvary was won in Gethsemane, says one commentator. But the battle wasn't over yet. We finish up with the last verse. These two verses the, uh, are pointed out only by Luke in his gospel. And it's interesting, this last verse about Jesus sweating great drops of blood, it seems that like Luke, being a physician, he was a doctor, was intrigued by this remaining detail. It was probably the rare medical con condition called hematidrosis. And this is from a secular medical source. Hematidrosis may occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. Capillaries around the sweat glands constrict under the pressure of great stress. The blood vessels dilate to the point of rupturing, and the blood goes into the sweat glands. As the glands produce sweat, they push the blood to the surface of the skin, which comes out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Jesus, in his anguish, experiencing for the first time, as I said, in eternity past, God's, God the Father's face turned away from him. Under, weight, under the weight of the olive press, began to let seep a sample of his precious blood. The blood of Jesus. The only commodity that could rescue humanity from the depths of depravity. The precious blood of Jesus. He saw my sin. He saw your sin. And the pressure he felt as he was preparing to be filled with it to the brim showed there upon his brow. And as we come to the communion table this morning, I just think of the blood of Jesus that was shed for me. Where in those great drops of blood that fell to the earth, where was the thought of my sin? Where was the thought of the things that I had done to offend and to repulse the Lord? Yet through his Love for me and his resolve, he was willing to go past all of that and to lay his life down for me. Shaking my fist at heaven in anger towards God, 2004, 
my brother, older brother, took his life, committed suicide. And I remember there was people trying to minister to me and share God's love with me. And my response was shaking my fist at heaven. It's before I was a Christian. At God in anger, how could you let this happen? Great drops of blood. That same year, I had gotten my girlfriend pregnant and I wanted her to have an abortion. I just wanted to be out of the situation. Wanted nothing to do with it. Great drops of blood. That same year, later in the year, I was so depressed, so riddled with guilt. Just at the end of my life, had been estranged from my family, no friends, no purpose, no life. Just thought I should just end it. I should just get out. It'll be easier for me and for everybody else. Great drops of blood. That is the love and the passion and the resolve of our Savior, that he would see those things. That he would know that he has to endure those things, that he has to become those things. And he loves us so much that he was willing to do it and he obeyed fully in the process and he submitted his will to the Father and even when the answer was no, Jesus proved that it would be the only way because he resolved to accomplish that for which he was sent. Amen. And now, Father, we just acknowledge that we're so thankful, God, for the work that you've done through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Theanthropos who laid his life down for us that we might have life, not because of our own merit or worth or righteousness or goodness, but because of his goodness and his work. Thank you, Lord, that even though we are not good, we trust in a God who desires to make us good because you want us to be like you, Lord, and you are good, and you prove that through your sacrifice for us. Help us, Lord, to walk out of this place, not devastated by our sin, unless that's gonna be helpful to bring us to you, but to be overwhelmed by your love, that you would love us so much that you would call us to yourself. And just like the disciples who failed in the garden, we acknowledge that we fail, Lord, but it's through your success that we're able to have life. Help us to trust in you. We give ourselves to you, Lord. Go before us and help us to walk with you, proclaiming your goodness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.